Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'd like to start this episode of the podcast by just expressing a lot of gratitude. Over the last weekend, I had the pleasure and really the privilege of hosting the Life After COVID Summit. I was joined by 11 incredible thinkers, experts, and teachers over the three days for a variety of conversations focused on how we can recover from the last year, grow the inner strengths we need to be successful during challenging times, and hopefully how we can create a better world together. Over 10,000 people watched the videos for the summit, which is just totally amazing to me. Um, I'm really just so happy that it went so well. Uh, We got a lot of incredible feedback as well, a lot of great comments about the work, a lot of great comments about the experts that we had on, and it was just a wonderful experience, and I'm really happy that I was able to do it. If you happen to miss the summit over the weekend, all the material is actually still up and available. You can find it by going to covidsummit.net or by clicking the link in the description of today's episode. All of the material will be completely freely available until May 26th, and if you want to watch everything after that, you can purchase lifetime access to the whole weekend's materials in addition to a bunch of bonuses. So for today's episode of Being Well, I wanted to feature one of the conversations that I had during the summit. It was with Dr. Joanne Cacciatore, and we talked about grief and loss over the past year. She's a wonderful teacher inside of this territory. She particularly is an expert in subjects related to traumatic grief. But really, all of us have lost something over the last year. And when we lose something, it's natural to go through some kind of grief process around it. But we don't all live in a culture that's super accommodating about that process. And a lot of people tend to be very uncomfortable around questions of grief and death and loss. These are tender, sensitive topics that we don't have a lot of cultural education around. It was a wonderful conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And if you want to watch the other 10 conversations or check out the live Q&As that I did with Rick as well, you can go to covidsummit.net. All right, here's my conversation with Dr. Joanne Cacciatore. Dr. Joe is an associate professor at Arizona State University and founder of the Miss Foundation, an international nonprofit organization with 75 chapters around the world that provides counseling, advocacy, research, and education services to families that have experienced the death of a child. Dr. Cacciatore spearheaded and currently directs the Graduate Certificate in Trauma and Bereavement Program at ASU and works with clients at the Sela Care Farm outside of Sedona, Arizona. She's also an ordained Zen priest affiliated with Zen Garland and its Child Bereavement Center outside of New York City. She's also the author of the wonderful, truly touching book, it's actually one of my absolute favorites in this territory, Bearing the Unbearable, Love, Loss, and the Heartbreaking Path of Grief. So Joanne, it's great to have you here with me today. How are you doing? Hi, Forrest. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here as part of the summit. Yeah, it was. it's wonderful to have you. I'm really so happy that you could do this, that you could take the time. I would love to just start with your experience over the last year, if you're comfortable talking about it. You're an expert on grief and loss and traumatic stress, and it's certainly been a year with a lot of those emotions. How's your year been, maybe particularly through the lens of like working with people who are going through these experiences? Yeah, so it's been an, a really interesting year. I've had a lot of uh, people re-grieving, people I work with five, six, seven, eight, ten years ago coming back looking for additional support. Um, I think that the that that COVID has done a lot of things in the world besides just the pandemic, you know, the illness itself. I think that it's also incited a kind of awareness for people of mortality. They call it in the literature mortality salience. Um, and so people are thinking about mortality a lot more. So there's a lot of fear. They're thinking not only about their own mortality, but about the potential mortality of mothers and fathers and grandparents and siblings and children. And it's it's just incited a lot of conversation that we haven't had. And also sort of this feeling of loneliness that which is already inherent normally in traumatic grief has been exacerbated. And so people are feeling even more lonely than they were before the pandemic. And so I, so this has been a really interesting thing. So, and then there's a third piece actually I should address, and that is 
people who lost a loved one, both within and beyond COVID-19, have suffered a great deal because they can't ritualize in the same way. They can't gather with family and friends in the same way. And so their opportunity to have very good social support has been compromised a bit. And this has added and complicated, I think, their bereavement experience in terms of ritualizing, um, giving and receiving social support in the midst of a, a significant loss. And again, that's both within and beyond the pandemic. So I worked with a, a, a lovely uh, man whose uh, wife and pregnant wife and young son were run over on purpose by another person during the pandemic. And, you know, he's sitting in his house, which was infused with the joy and love of his family. And now they're gone. And his other family, this was at the beginning of the pandemic, and, and no one was allowed to travel. And so he, he was alone in his home trying to cope. This is really, I mean, I think we're going to see generational effects of this sort of inherent loneliness because of the pandemic. I think we're going to be dealing with this for generations. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I think that we can only really begin to get the most general sense of the long-term knockoff effects of going through this whole experience as a culture and, and also as individuals. Uh, one of the things that you are such an, an expert in is the traumatic stress associated with grief, yes, but just kind of traumatic stress in general. And even for people who haven't experienced a traumatic death associated with COVID or otherwise during this pandemic, we've all been witnesses to a lot of stuff going out in the world that is tremendously stressful. And I've, I've had so many friends who go through a lot of self-criticism because they haven't had a bereavement experience or similar, but they've just had a hard time over the last year. And they're like, oh, I don't know why I'm feeling so bad about this. Other people have it so much worse. But nonetheless, that's extremely stressful. Yeah. Well, I, I do think that stress affects us in unique ways. I think mm. that people who do that are trying to keep perspective, right? Like I'm yeah. here and I'm really struggling to adjust to uh, working from home, to balancing children and a job, to, um, to the fear of my elderly parents becoming sick and something happening to them. And also, you know, my neighbor down the road, um, her husband just died of COVID. And so I'm trying to keep perspective, like all the people I love are still alive. And, and so I think you bring up something really important. That is that it's important to both legitimize how we feel and engage some good stress resilience techniques, while also, of course, keeping our eye on the great Eastern sun, right? You know, keeping our eye <laughs> yeah. on the bigger perspective that, if we have not been affected by this directly and everyone we love is still mm -hmm. alive, that yes, indeed, we don't have it as, as awful as some people have it. Yeah. Th totally. Those two can coexist though. We can legitimize our own feelings while at the same time, mm. sort of gosho bowing to the horrible or catastrophic experiences of others. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's actually a great segue into kind of the the guiding question that I had for our conversation here today, which is just how we can honor and be with all of the things that we've lost over the last year. And I'd like to start just by asking you about something that I've been noticing a lot recently as a kind of way into our topic here. I wouldn't really recommend to most people that they spend much time on Twitter, but if you happen to spend a little bit of time there, there's been kind of this rise of people who are really putting a lot of pressure on others uh, to just sort of get back to normal, in quotation marks. They say some version of, if you're vaccinated and you wear a mask, you're just being too nervous, cases are going down, why are people still freaking out, all of that. And it feels like in general, there's been this real rush to not be present and to kind of not honor all of the stuff that's happened over the last year. And I'm just wondering what you've seen of that, maybe in the framing of your work. Um. Well, normal's a tricky tricky word in the in the context of my work right yeah i mean look this has changed the way that we live and i think it's important to honor that and in some ways so beyond the people who have had a catastrophic loss and experienced death in some ways this is a real opportunity for us as a as a society and as a global society to change to change our relationship with nature to change our relationship with animals, 
to change our relationship with each other and to change our relationship with ourselves. This great mother earth that holds us all, uh, um, the, the probably the best thing that could come from this experience is to be more connected to the earth and all her inhabitants. And that requires some significant change. So if by going back to normal, again, taking catastrophic loss off the table, if going back to normal means resuming life as normal, I certainly hope we don't. This is, of course, my personal opinion, but there is a significant opportunity for change and growth as, as, as a global population that we can uh, internalize and enact. And I think that would better our world. Now, having said that, I, that's at a macro level. At an individual level, there are also opportunities for us to grow at an individual level with the things that we do and the way that we interact with people and our awareness of mortality and the potential of mortality. Because so mortality salience, this, which is defined as sort of this awareness of our finitude, right? That's a simple, yeah. easy, quick definition. Once we become aware of our finitude and perhaps more importantly, the finitude of those we love, once we become aware of that for us, then it gives us an opportunity to first experience fear and terror, the terror that comes with it, like, <laughs> holy beep, yeah. right? Um, but then if we can get beyond the terror, then we can get to the place where this could potentially provide a real opportunity for us to love better, deeper, and in more meaningful ways to connect with each other. And I think we had lost some of that before the pandemic. And I think the pandemic is in a way an open door to those of us who want to live a wakeful life walking through and saying, okay, I'm going to be different. I'm going to stay more connected to the people I love. I'm going to extend more compassion to more beings on this planet. I'm going to change what's in here so that I can change what's going on out here. You know, fear sometimes is at the core of that. Of course, a lot of people are afraid with the pandemic. Yes, of course, because when we're afraid, because when we're aware of mortality, when we're aware of the potential that someone we love can die, of course, fear is the first and natural response. And also, if we can stay with that fear, it can create, it can transfigure us into different beings where we don't, where we're more likely to minimize regret. Like, you know, our children leave and instead of leaving you know, and we're angry at them for not cleaning their room. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm unhappy that you didn't clean your room. And I also need you to know before you leave today that I love you more than anything. Right. And, and those opportunities, because I, of course I work with people who have some of those regrets, not necessarily because of the pandemic, but even beyond the pandemic, their loved one left the house and they, their last word was a harsh word. And they have had to experience that in a catastrophic way, that regret. And we can learn from that. We can learn how to do better and be better in our lives. And I think the pandemic is an, is an amazing opportunity to do that and also tragic. So it's, it's both. And I hope we don't go back to normal because normal was woefully broken. I hope we are forever changed by this experience. Absolutely. No, I, I think that it's a great framing of everything that we've been through over the last year. It reminds me of the Latin phrase, memento mori, which yeah. basically is just translated as remember that you're going to die or remember that you too must die. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for many people, for many cultures throughout history, there has been this respectful, venerative relationship with death and with passing. And I think that it's fair to say that a lot of the time in conventional Western culture, death and also the bereavement that's associated with it is held up as this kind of finite period that somebody goes through, they grieve for a, a brief period of time, and then you know they move on with their lives or yes. whatever it is. And one of the things that is so present in your work um, that I've heard you say so consistently is that people who are grieving various kinds of losses, whether it's the, the loss of a loved one or otherwise, are most of the time told to let go in one way or another far too soon. That's right. And um that in a sense creates a context of not remembering and when we don't remember we don't change 
We don't change when we're comfortable. We change when we're uncomfortable. So staying connected to our grief, staying connected um, to the events that happened to us, to the people who we love and lost, or to the things even, to the feelings associated with the things like a feeling of safety in the world. Staying connected to what it was like to have lost that is important because that's what propels us toward change. And that's what propels us to be better toward growth. So, um, you know, so I'm not a huge fan of sort of this sort of, you know, move on and forget about it, especially as it relates to people we love who died. I will never forget my daughter who died. My brother died tragically. My brother died a few weeks ago. Um, I lost my parents when I was in my 30s. So I've lost many people I love. And I keep them very near to me every day. It's a practice. I turn toward them every day um, because for me, remembering them is the only way I can live in the world a meaningful life. If I detach myself from remembering, if I detach myself from those relationships, even though they're changed and they're changed in ways I didn't want, right? Uh, if I detach myself from that, if I distance myself from it, then I live a smaller world, a more contracted life. And I'm not able to bring compassion to the world in the fierce way I want to bring compassion to the world. What allows you to be with those feelings, those really intense feelings? I mean, you just talked about losing somebody recently without becoming overwhelmed by them or kind of caught up in the in the sharp edges of that experience. Is, is there something that allows you to be present with them in a way that feels like it's supportive and broadens your experience? I'm like everyone else. I get, I am overwhelmed by it, you know, and there are sharp edges. I just stay with the sharp edges long enough to know how to adapt to them. I just, you know, if you stay with a sharp edge long enough, if you work with a sharp edge long enough, it dulls it just a little bit. It's not quite as sharp. If you, if you pick up a weight, a 10 pound barbell, and the first time you do a a curl, it's really heavy and you do two or three and you're exhausted and you put it down, but you keep practicing with it every day. Eventually you build the muscle that you need to lift it multiple times and not get tired. And what's not, what, what's changed is me, not the weight. The weight is still the same. And so it's a practice of being with things that are overwhelming. And as you practice being with things that are overwhelming, they're some of the sharp edges of being overwhelmed are not quite as sharp. It's not quite as heavy or you're a little stronger to carry it. So I have my own practice I do every day. I, I have a Zazen practice. Um, I hike barefoot. I write and I read excessively, perhaps. Um, and most importantly, I have an Ahimsa practice, which is at the core, which is a, a, a oneness practice of seeing suffering in all things. And, and so that means, uh, of course, uh, that includes my more than 40 rescue animals here on the care farm. Um, but I have a practice of connecting with all things that suffer. So I think, you know, at, at least once a day, I have a meditation where I think about other humans who have suffered who are like me and other humans who have suffered who are not like me. And then I extend that, of course, a little like the meta meditation, but I include in that you know, mother cows whose babies are taken away from them and insects who are, I mean, I just include all beings and I stay with that suffering. And I think that it's the connection to my own grief and pain that I keep right at the surface that I don't push away that helps me to not only feel the suffering of all beings, but do something about it. So I when people come here to work with me, one of the things I do is help them to create a practice of their own. And so um, I try to make it, you know, personalize it. We work together to, to say sort of what would work for you to have for, for a practice. But I, but without a doubt, having a daily practice really does help. You've actually mentioned a few times already your connection essentially to the earth, to the land, to animals to uh, hiking barefoot, you know, whatever it might be. Is that a, is, is that an element? Is that a component that tends to come up for people when they go through experiences of loss or grief that tends to be supportive? I think so. I mean, nature is an incredible um, helper uh, in suffering. If we pay attention, we have to pay attention. 
But if we pay attention, nature is, is profound, is a profound teacher. And also, I think that uh, when we have suffered, especially a catastrophic loss and we're hurting, we're more apt to be sensitive to the hurt and pain of others if we keep our hearts open. There have been uh, some interesting research studies in this area, Forrest. One of them showed that um, they were looking at people, and this, these were just, this was just people who were taking Tylenol. So they gave people a painkiller, and uh, I think it was Tylenol or acetaminophen or something. And um, after they gave them Tylenol, they basically assessed other people's pain as less than what it really was. But when they were in pain, they assessed people's pain as equivalent to what it is. So when we're in pain, we're clearly more sensitive to the pain of others, okay? So when we've been through something painful, if we keep our hearts open, that can extend. And I mean, I think that's what can change the world. I think staying with our grief and our pain and our sense of loss and our fear and our terror, if we can stay with it, I think that's the energy that we need as a species to change you know, global warming, war. I mean, I really do. I know that's a big statement, but I think it's the avoidance of these things that cause, you know, not only war within us, but war in families and war in communities and war amongst nations. So um, if we create a space of being with painful emotions and we can see then the pain of the other, then how much do we then wish to not cause that kind of pain to another being. Yeah, those avoidance experiences, I think you're really right, are at the root of so many of the other difficult things out in the world. Because I, I was talking with Steve Hayes at for the summit, it's the very first session that we had. He's the creator of acceptance and commitment therapy. And his point consistently is that, look, if we can't accept the things that happen to us, then we have no ability to move forward effectively. We have no ability to change things for the better. And scaling it up to the kind of global community that you're speaking to here, if we can't accept the conditions that we were living in prior to this pandemic, it's very, very hard to do anything functionally to change them. And what I think is really great about part of what you're saying here is you're talking about feeling into common humanity. Who are the others who have suffered like me? And one of the things that you mentioned toward the very beginning of our conversation here is the experience of, of loneliness and isolation that people who are going through grief often feel, um, particularly probably exacerbated by the unique conditions of the pandemic where functionally many people who were going through intense periods of grief were not allowed to be in close contact with loved ones. But alongside that, in, in my understanding, and please let me know from your expertise here, people who have experienced loss generally can feel a lot of shame, isolation, loneliness around it. Um, I've had friends apologize frequently to me for feeling sad while they're grieving, which I was like, this is really adorable. Don't worry about it. This is great. Um, but I understand that this is painful and it, and it feels hard. Um, are there things that people can do, just as you're saying, to move more into that experience of like common humanity or, or compassionate connection to others while they're going through a painful experience like grief? Yes, certainly. And, and but... I also don't want to um, to take the responsibility off the social system for moving toward people who are grieving because uh, because it is such an isolating and painful experience. Um, I think that it's incredibly important for people to continue to reach out to people who are grieving. Our natural inclination when we're very, very hurt especially in a world that's relatively unsympathetic toward loss. I mean, we have this sort of bizarre yeah, relationship totally. with grief to start. Um, the natural propensity for many people is just to self-protect and that means withdraw. Mm -hmm. Because the world, because you go out in the world and let's say you've lost a child and people who have lost a child frequently hear things like, well, she wouldn't want you to be sad or, God has a plan for you or, or the better yet, God needed an angel to tend his garden. Yes. People hear that. Or someone who's lost a partner to suicide. Well, didn't you know he was depressed? What did you do to help her? I mean, right? So the reality is grieving people hear these kinds of things all the time. It's a kind of psychological yeah. violence. 
And yeah, so totally. the, yeah, and the world isn't safe anymore. And so people withdraw. And I think that the onus of responsibility to reach out really falls on our social systems. We have a duty to reach out to people who are grieving, who are in our circle of, you know, family or friends to say, I love you. I'm thinking of you. And, you know, use the person who died, use their name, send them a text. Or if, if, if you see a dragonfly and, you know, and a dragonfly was their symbol, take a picture and send it to them. I'm thinking of you and, and your dad. I mean, these, these are the kinds of things we have to be doing for each other and we aren't doing them for each other. And so grieving people understandably withdraw because it doesn't feel safe. Anywhere we don't feel safe, we self-protect. Now, grieving people, of course, yes, there are things that we can do for ourselves, our own work, having a practice, and a good clinician can work with anyone to establish a practice. But I think if someone's actually had a traumatic grief experience where they've experienced the death of a core family member, uh, it's incredibly important to find a clinician who's well-skilled and well-trained in this because the, the the overarching feedback I get from clients for the quarter of a century I've been doing this work is, is shocks me. I mean, <laughs> just the stories I hear about their experiences with clinicians, um, they shock me. Anyway, so um, a pra- having a practice is important. Surrounding yourself with people you trust and who love you and who will remember with you and sort of putting other relationships that feel unsafe on hold, at least until you feel a little stronger. Uh, Good self-care can be helpful and also quite hard, right? Um, But one of the things that's come out in my research that has been really surprising to me, um, and I've always been an animal, I think you probably know this from reading about me, but I've been, I've been, uh, I have abstained from animal products since I was seven years old, which was a long time ago because I'm really old. And so um, (laughs) I've always had a love for animals. But one of the things that surprised me in a recent study is I looked at social support from different groups and how grieving people rated social support from different groups. And I didn't even actually intend to look at animals. I was ready to hit publish on the survey. I had... um, healthcare providers, therapists, social workers, um, clergy, any kind of clergy. What else did I have? First responders. I had all of these different groups in there and I was about to hit publish on the, on the survey and I threw animals and pets in there. And I will (laughs) tell you, Forrest, that animals and pets outdid everyone by a statistical significance. Yeah. I'm, I can't say I'm shocked. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, (laughs) I mean, well, and we know this, right? During the pandemic, animals were, there were no animals in shelters anywhere. You couldn't get an animal. You couldn't adopt an animal. So that tells us something about our relationship and the human-animal connection. So yes, there are things that we can do as grieving people, but also I don't want to take the responsibility off the social system, which owes it. We owe it to each other because we're all going to be there someday. Totally. Um, There are like five different things you just said that I want to touch on or loop back to or whatever. It was awesome. But let's just start kind of right there with the with the social support system. If I came to you and I said, you know, Dr. Joe, I have a friend who just lost somebody. They are going through a really hard time right now. What can I do? What's the advice that you would give me? Um, learn first. Learn hmm. first. Um, read good books. I mean, you know, granted I wrote it, but I only make a dollar. So for every sale, so <laughs> Bearing the Unbearable is a really good book to read because- It is a very good book. Yeah. It it, it just, it, it provides a lot of vignettes and it's a, it's a vast education in a short read. Mm-hmm. And that will mm-hmm. help you because you will see, because so much of what I cover is about social interaction. But, but, but more simply stated, if you don't want to read a book, Love them, remember with them, and show up for them, and don't put a time limit on it. Don't push them to healing. And for goodness sake, if your friend says, you know, calls you, reaches out, and this is a grieving friend, and and he or she says, or they say, I'm having such a hard time. I'm, I can you come over? I need I need to talk to someone. For goodness sake, don't go over there and say, let's go have a drink, because that happens all the time. Come on, let's mm, go have a drink, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that, let's go have fun. Yeah. 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 Or, I mean, 
I mean, the problem with substance abuse in our culture is that people use substances oftentimes to escape an emotional experience, consciously or unconsciously. We're basically encouraging and enabling that behavior, which isn't a good idea. So what ends up happening is, you know, let's go have a drink so that you don't feel. But then when the person becomes addicted to a drug or alcohol, then what's wrong with you? Pull yourself together. Then we blame quote, addicts for their, quote, addictive behaviors. We tell them, don't feel, don't feel, don't feel. Use these things not to feel. But then when you use these things to feel, then there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Then and, it's a lack of moral responsibility. Yeah, totally. Yes, absolutely. And so this is really important. So friends mm-hmm. show up and just be with them. Say, would you share videos with me? Can we look at some photographs? Are you, you know, can I go into his room? Um, you know, would you like to talk about her, you know, and you know, would you want to go for a walk? Sure. A walk is okay. (laughs) But when you walk, allow them to share their feelings, don't run from them. And, and the most important thing for us, if we're going to be helpers, whether we're a therapist or a medical doctor or a nurse, or just a friend or a neighbor is that we have to do our own work too. Because if, let's say, because my brother died a few weeks ago, so let's say that I'm not doing my grief work about my brother, and two years from now, my friend's brother dies, I'm, if I haven't done my work, I'm going to avoid her. It's going to be hard for me to engage with her because it's going to bring things up in me that I've sort of buried underneath layers of whatever, media, mediocrity, superficiality. And so it's very important, perhaps most important for therapists to do their own work because people are actually paying you to help them do your damn work people right but also as a as a as a as a as a moral sort of duty to each other we have to do our own work something that you've said a couple of times that has just kind of stuck out to me is you've consistently mentioned naming the person who isn't here anymore like naming the person who is lost and Maybe it's just a Western culture thing. Maybe it's our our awkward dance with grief and loss in general. But a lot of the time, uh, in my experience, there's this sort of discomfort with naming the person who is no longer in the room. People aren't sure if the grieving person wants it, quote unquote, brought up to them, whatever. So what I'm hearing in terms of advice is that you're basically, of course, everyone's different saying, hey, this is generally a healthy thing to do. Yes, not only most often healthy, but most often necessary and appreciated. I I think that's the number one thing I hear from people is that they feel abandoned and like their loved one is forgotten. And listen, if someone, it's okay to ask too, if you're uncertain, would you like to talk about Joe? Would you, would you be comfortable sharing a memory of Marissa? You know, it's okay to ask or, you know, just send a text message thinking of Marissa right? Those are the kinds of things that are almost always appreciated. Now, I will say that I work with some cultures, especially some indigenous tribes, where um, some people who are particularly adherent don't use the name, the name of the person who died as part of their tradition. And if that's the case with them, then of course, I respect that. But I follow their lead on that, and it would be more the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. One of the things that you've also kind of mentioned a couple of times, and you drew this really fantastic distinction in our first conversation together that I just want to bring up again, is the kind of Venn diagram of trauma and grief, how there is trauma associated with grief, but grief is also kind of this other thing, and then they overlap in the middle, and that's kind of where most of your work happens in that area of traumatic bereavement. Um, and one of the things that you named, in our again, in our first conversation was that grief isn't something that we let go of. It often becomes a part of us. It becomes a part of identity or lived experience in the world. But over time, we can work with the more traumatic aspects, the just pure pain aspects of grief. And so I just want to kind of give you an opportunity here to talk about that a little and talk about how those two things are a little bit different. So in if I had a chart, I would do the Venn diagram, right? Trauma is here and grief is here. Not all trauma brings grief. Not all grief brings trauma. But in the center where they overlap is traumatic grief. And that is all of my work is really around traumatic grief. Grief is sort of this um, 
it's not a monolithic emotional experience. Grief can contains the the sort of molecules of many different emotional experiences, like sometimes rage or anger, uh, envy or jealousy, resentment, fear or terror, deep sadness, anguish, despair, loneliness. I mean, there are so many uh, emotional experiences that give rise in the in in our experience of grief that are that are that are sort of percolate to the surface. Trauma is a very bodily experience. Anyone who's had trauma knows that you feel it somatically. You feel it. Your heart, you can feel it in your heart. I mean, and and the core emotional experience of all trauma is fear, which can be part of grief too. So there's that overlap there of fear. So fear is something that we definitely feel in the body, right? Uh, it's a it's an experience that animals share with us, much like grief. Um, so you can see it in an animal. You can even see it in some, you know, sort of insect behavior, you know, this, you know, if you're chasing a spider around the house, the spider's running for a reason. Yeah. Right. Totally. Right. So trauma being held in the body that way has some very sharp bodily edges. For example, as you know, even sometimes years after a traumatic experience, we can re-experience that sense of terror in the body, increase heart rate, pupils dilate to take in more information. We lose peripheral vision, uh, mass muscle uh, groups get more circulatory action going on and our fine motor skills diminish, eyelids lift, our respiration increases, blood pressure increases, all of these sort of physiological changes in reaction to a traumatic or potentially traumatic experience, some kind of dangerous thing that we perceive. Okay, when the dangerous thing is in the moment for us, so um, I'm um, I'm walking through a, a parking lot and I hear a shadow, right? And uh, it's dark and I'm by myself and I'm I'm getting scared because no one else is around and I don't know how fast I can get to my car. And it sounds, the sound sounds like it's getting closer. What's happening is my heartbeat is, is accelerating. I've got my keys ready in my hand. I might be shaking a little bit uh, and I'm walking very fast, maybe running. And I'm going to be faster than usual if I'm running. And I get to my car, I unlock it. I get in, I lock it. I'm shaking. I get my key in the ignition and I drive away. And, you know, within 10 minutes, my body is saying, okay, oh, we're safe. We're okay. Shoo. And my heartbeat will try to go back to homeostasis. My body, the stress hormones pulsing through my bloodstream will calm down. And I will, I will, uh, maybe I'll call, you know, in a narrative attempt to narrate the trauma, I'll call my best friend and I'll say, oh my gosh, the scariest thing just happened. I don't even know what it was, but I heard the sound and it was coming up behind me, you know, and then tomorrow I'm probably fine. Back to homeostasis. The problem with traumatic grief is that the threat that presents itself presents itself every day when you put your feet on the floor. If your three-year-old died of cancer, every day you open your eyes without your child is a threat. Every day you open your eyes without your, your safe person, your mother or your father, feels like a threat. Every day that you have to live without your partner whom you love, who, who you took care of or who took care of you feels like a threat. And, and it takes the mind, the heart, the existential self or soul a long time to adapt and to return to homeostasis. So the things that we can do are to work with the body around that, right? To work with the, the bodily response. And usually that's through like self-care, right? Because the stress hormones are pumping through our bloodstream, right? And so that happens at various times. You can feel it. People who are in traumatic grief can feel it sometimes for months and sometimes for years, uh, you know, at various times when they're, I don't call it triggered, I call it cued uh, because of the negative connotations with trigger. So when they're cued, um, you know, they can ex re-experience this, this sensation. And so my, my job is to often help them take care of the body that holds all this stress and also to work with and build muscle so that when the cues come, they're not as overwhelming or frightening.
man, for me, what just really stands out in what you're saying is an appreciation for the ongoing, the ongoing process of it. How this isn't a thing that happened to you. It is a thing that is happening to you right now. You know, you've that that person isn't here anymore. And they're not being here as an active verb, not a passive experience. That's exactly um, it. And, wow, you said you know, that beautifully that, too. You just said that really beautifully. Because I think thank that you. so many people don't get that. So many people don't get mm. that. Like I wake up every day and I have to walk past my three-year-old's empty room and it's not happy anymore. And our home has become a house of pain and everything mm. has changed. And so it's const this constant, I call it the constant presence of their absence. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's a fantastic articulation of it. And, you know, it's one of those things that just in, in the act of talking about it, you get the tingles because it lands in a different kind of way. And you get that appreciation of like, wow, this is still a thing that is in the room with us, you know, as I'm having this interaction with that's this right. person. That's right. And it's um, big. Yeah. And, and it's a big thing. It's yeah. not a small thing. Yeah. It's not something that you're just through or yes. however we want to kind of culturally conceive of it. Yes. Maybe alongside that a little bit, uh, you talked about the common emotional experiences associated with grief, whether it's isolation, sadness, all of these things. Another one you named is anger. And I think that particularly in the context of a global pandemic, where it feels like a lot of people messed a lot of things up that resulted in massive loss of life, there is a natural feeling of anger that could arise in people. Some other topics you've named through the conversation, interacting with animals, respecting the earth, being good to other people, like, wow, that can really start to activate a little bit. I, I don't know how to ask this question in a tidy way, but basically I'm just wondering, how do you think about or work with the anger parts of the grief experience? Oh yeah, anger's legit. Like, anger's righteous, <laughs> right? <laughs> Anger's legit. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, um, you know, I don't see, I'm not a, a dichotomer, dichotomizer of emotions. I don't have a good basket here and a bad basket here. Um, anger is an emotion and it's what we do with that anger and how we allow that anger to move. Right. So if I'm really angry, for example, uh, one of my rescue horses um, was being beaten on a trail when I found him. And he was um, emaciated to the point of being very, very close to death. His bones were actually coming through his skin. And he was being worked very, very hard in that condition. I was angry. I mean, I'm, I'm a long-term animal advocate anyway. I mean, like, you know, you know, vegan since 72 is a, is a pretty strong commitment, right? Uh, and so for me, this was quite shocking. And by the way, vicariously traumatizing. And I was really angry. In fact, I was rageful uh, when I saw this. And that that was fine. Like I legitimized my, that's righteous anger. Good. Now stay with it. And what are you going to do with it? And then I transfigured it, right? I stayed with it and then it became action. Then it became fierce compassion. So, uh, that's the great thing about powerful emotions is that if we stay with them and fully inhabit them, they can transform into something that means some kind of compassionate action in the world that's really kind of fearless. Because anger has a lot of, it's a potent emotion, um, just like grief, right? It's a, they're, they're potent emotions. They're very powerful. You can feel them. They're very bodily. They touch all of our senses. And if we can stay with them long enough, it, they can be transfigured into something that becomes fearless action in the world. So, um, so when I'm working with someone who's angry, I'm like, yeah, okay, let's talk about it. Let's go into the center of it. Right. And then maybe when they're ready, they're, they're going to be able to transform or transfigure that anger, that energy of anger into something useful. Right something that actually is actionable. I do think holding it here can potentially have ill effects, right? So we're, if we're holding it in because it's an emotion, if we're damming it up like you, like you would dam up a river, if you dam it up, there's a lot of force against the concrete wall of a dam, right? And so I think just sort of letting it flow and staying with it and then seeing where it takes you and transfigures. 
Yeah, what's what's really present in that for me is this is anger as a galvanizing emotion. It is that it, it has this incredible energetic force that can be behind it. Um, it can move us into a stance of wanting to protect others or care for others. It can get us out of, uh, I mean, I, I hesitate to use this language, but it can get us out of times in our life where we feel stuck or we feel trapped inside of a cycle. But what feels really present for me is that action of just letting it flow rather than kind of holding, clinging on to it, if that kind of makes sense, and allowing it to move you and motivate you into action. Um, something you've said a couple of times here that I want to let you kind of speak to for a second, because I know that, again, it's a big part of your work, uh, are the somatic elements of the experience. And for a lot of people, when they're experiencing, I mean, just in general in this culture, we have a tortured relationship with the body, and we have like a very not always super positive relationship with our, our corporal forms in a lot of different ways. But for people who are going through really challenging emotions, getting into the body can be a kind of painful experience because that's where the emotion resides. And there, there can be a lot of suffering associated with kind of cracking that open. Um, how do you help people or support people who feel estranged from their body get back into it? Yeah, I mean, the number one thing is safety, right? Uh, um, and I think my ahimsa practice helps me there, right? Because if I'm gonna, if I'm going to help a tortured horse regain trust in a world where people who look like me do very awful things, then I should be able to create a safe enough space for a human being, right? So they first have to feel safe, and I—that's um, one of the things that I practice—is helping all beings feel safe. Right. And so safety is first and foremost and resonance. So I uh, am very, very good at sort of being aware of myself enough to provide resonance for people so that I can mirror for them what they're experiencing. And so if it's too much, then we say, OK, let's just would you like to just wait? Let's just stay here. Let's just stay here in this moment. And I may, you know, reach across and touch a knee or depending on the person, depending on the relationship, but safety and resonance are key. They're the foundation upon which all the practice here at the care farm is built, including with the animals. So if I'm working with a tortured and abused horse, like Chamaco, the, my first horse rescue, the one I was telling you about, when I first met him, um, you know, he was... At first, he was just too beaten down to be afraid. And so he wasn't. He didn't back away. But once he got a little bit stronger, he was more afraid. And so if he would take a step back from me, I would take a step back from him. And I would give him space. Right? We can learn so much from them. And when he would take a step toward me, I would lean into him. And if that felt okay to him, then I would take a step toward him. And then I would offer him my hand. I went very slowly on his time, at his pace, paying very careful attention. This is where a meditation practice can be helpful because you pay such attention. You're, you're almost hearing and seeing things before they're happening. It's almost a pre-sentience state that you can get to when you have a meditation practice. And so you're, you're almost hyper aware. And this is the practice of oneness. I mean, when I become one with that tortured horse out there and I am paying such deep attention to him that we're one being, then I know how to help him. And it's the same thing with tortured people. If you can create a space, say, now here's the problem we're in a hurry. We don't, we're not patient. We, we have an agenda. Therapists come to this with an agenda. I want to fix this person. Right. And our agenda gets in the way of just being still and waiting with them in that liminal space. And so my approach is very different from that. I go very slowly. I go at the pace that they need, that the person needs and the reason I'm so skilled at doing that is because the animals have been my great teachers. Right? Slowness, safety, you mentioned social support earlier. 
an appreciation for the ongoing nature of the experience. These feel like some of the kind of tent poles that were laid yeah. down here. Yeah. Yeah. You give a lot in your work, obviously. I'm not saying that to flatter you. I'm saying it as a statement of fact. Um, and for a lot of people, they they might be a professional caregiver or this pandemic has put a lot of people into impromptu caregiving roles, caring for a loved one, caring for an older mother or father, even at a distance. Um, just the, the empathic distress that we often find ourselves in these days, looking out at the world, the horrible things that are going on out there. Are there practices that you do? You've named some of them. You've named many practices here so far, but just in a general way, are there things that you do to prevent burnout, caregiver fatigue, yourself wearing down so you still have something to give from your cup and to somebody else's? Yeah, I mean, I get, I've gotten asked that for years and years and years, long before yeah, the pandemic, because the because of the emotional labor required to do yes, this, work, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I, I don't know if you can sense it from me or or not, but I've never been anywhere near burnout <laughs> or yeah, it doesn't. That's part of why I'm asking. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, I think the reason that I do that I can do this, first of all, is that I fully inhabit my own grief, and that's an mm. energy that's vital. Um, the second is that I don't restrain. I don't hold back love mm -hmm. and compassion. I think a lot of sort of caregivers, um, especially professional caregivers, I'm not talking about family caregivers, but professional caregivers sort of feel this professional mm -hmm. boundary thing and they're constantly mm -hmm. restraining and constraining and that requires energetic output. A lot right? of effort. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I just don't, I just love people and just, you know, show compassion. Mm -hmm. I just, I'm, it's not that I'm not concerned with boundaries. It's not that like, I don't like, it's not that I don't have a personal life that I protect. I do, but it's not, it, it's not this thing. It's just, it's there, but it's not this thing. I don't worry about it. I'm just very clear about what's mine and what's not mine. And I engage with people in a way where I'm, um, com I'm very, very compassionate and deeply empathic, but I don't take what belongs to them. I don't colonize people's emotional experiences. I don't take their emotions home as my own. I share it with them, but it doesn't become mine because I have no right to colonize their emotion. I'm not taking something that's not mine. So I'll deal with my own stuff. I've got enough, <laughs> right? So I'll deal with my own stuff on my own time and do my own work. But someone else's experience of grief or anger or rage or terror is their experience and I will experience it with them and then leave it and go home feeling that I've cared for them well and that I've shared that experience, but that experience is not my experience. It's a little bit yeah, like- Yeah, that's a great distinction. Yeah, it's a little like the difference between cognitive empathy and affective empathy. So, and, mm -hmm. I, and I do, I, I have a practice and, and then all the other things that I talked about, my animals, which who are, I take care of them, but they also take great care of me and all the animals in the world. And um, my barefoot hiking practice and my yoga practice and my meditation practice and reading and writing and, you know, sort of all the things that I do that, that really work for me and helping me become uh, a being in this world that can connect with, with others. You live a very full life. It's full. It's very. It's, yeah. it's extremely full. Yes. Yeah. Yes. No. But I mean, in like a in a in a beautiful way, oh. just putting it very simply, Thank like you. you live a very full life, Thank and that it, it it feels like that um that part of it is what allows you to in in some ways both process and be with and work with your own experiences that have been extremely painful throughout the course of your life. Yes. Um, and also still extend so much to other people. Yeah. And I'm not um, afraid of feeling. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, really, I'm, yeah. I'm really, I'm not afraid of my own feelings and I'm not afraid of other people's feelings. I've had a lot of clients say that to me. I have a, a native client I work with whose beautiful six-year-old son was murdered and she had tried a lot of therapists, a lot of counseling before she met me. And she said, Dr. C, you know, I, I, I came back to you. She would, she would try them once and then never go back. And she said, the reason I keep coming back to you is because you're not afraid of me and my feelings and other people were afraid. She, she said, I could smell their fear because she had big feelings about not wanting to be here. You know, of course, what person whose child is murdered doesn't question 
the existential meaning of life and whether or not it's worth it to stay. And that seems super consistent in everything that you've said so far that, and I think it's just a really good summary, that idea that oftentimes we are afraid of other people's emotional experience. We can be afraid of our own, certainly, but then when we're in that more supportive social role, we're afraid of the grief that the other person is carrying and all of the big emotions that are associated with that. Yes, that's true. It's very true. Kind of alongside that, you were talking about this, this person who had experienced, you know, a, a horrific form of traumatic bereavement was asking very, very real questions about whether or not they wanted to be here. A lot of people experience various forms of, just to use the phrase that I'm familiar with, you might have a better phrase of survivorship guilt. Um, are there things that you've found be supportive of people who are intensely investigating that existential question? Well, I mean, I, I take people into guilt, whatever guilt that they feel, right? So sometimes it's survivor guilt, sure. Sometimes it's guilt because they did something that caused the death of someone they love. I work with a father who ran over his four-year-old on accident, of course, right? So I, I take people into the center of it and I say, let's talk about it, right? So I'm like, I'm not afraid to talk about hard feelings. I mean, there are, and I don't delegitimize them either. I mean, I feel guilty for my own child's death. And what most medical providers would say is you couldn't have known, it wasn't your fault, yada, yada, yada. That, I don't need to hear that. I need to be able to feel what I feel legitimately, right? And have a safe place to talk about that. And if I can't talk about my guilt to a counselor or a therapist, it, just because we don't talk about it doesn't mean it's not there. So we have to have a safe place to to really talk about it. And just talking about it doesn't mean it's going to go away either. Because it's been 27 years this summer since my daughter died. And I still feel guilty for her death. And when I tell people that, I, it's really interesting for us. I just told someone that last week, you know, that I felt guilty for her death. And let, like the person responded with, like you, like, you caused it? And I said, yes. Yes, like I had a hand in her death and you, you could just see the uncomfortableness in her face. And I said, I I don't need you to respond to that. Like you, you don't need to fix this. You can't. <laughs> it's okay. I know how. I have enough space for that guilt and I'm yeah. allowed to feel that. And I don't want you to take it away from me. It doesn't impede my quality of life. In fact, it probably it probably may be the impetus for being able to do the work at the level I'm able to do the work, right? You know, I'm unexhaustingly doing this work, right? And so I don't need you to fix this. I have space for it. So when someone comes with survivor guilt or more direct guilt, I work with them on it. Let's talk about it. What does it mean to you? Is it is it important to you that the guilt goes away? And what do you mean by goes away? And what, without using the word guilt, tell me what you feel. I mean, there are so many things to explore there, right? I'm just not afraid to go anywhere with people. Yeah, that's that's really what it sounds like to me overall, that it's you're, you're not afraid to go anywhere with people. You are allowing people to be with their experience rather than trying to change it. We have a fix-it orientation in our culture broadly. We certainly have a fix-it orientation in our therapy. Uh, that's something where, thankfully, there's more of an ongoing conversation that's been happening over the last 10 or 20 years around maybe moving out of the fix-it orientation so much into more of a being-with orientation, which I think is wonderful. But like that's such a consistent message in what you're saying here. And I think that if someone's looking for a solo takeaway, that's a really good one. Look, there are things that there are things I can help people fix. For example, if they're not sleeping well, I can give them a good sleep hygiene sheet. I can introduce them to BBT. I can, you know, there are things I know that I can help them with. Absolutely. And I do. But emotions are their emotions. I can't fix their emotional experiences, nor should I, right? Yeah. As we kind of come toward the end here, Dr. Joe, I'm asking all of our guests the same final question. Uh, if you could offer one thing to people, a piece of advice, an idea, something else entirely, for them to just keep in mind over the next maybe six months or so as we go through this very weird transitional period together, what would it be? 
Oh, goodness. Okay. Well, I'm going to actually invoke the wisdom of someone else on this. And this would be Dr. Bernice King. And this is the, this Mm. is the tidbit I would leave with people. As a nation, I surmise that we do not grieve enough. And in many respects, I would say that many of our issues we are challenged with in society are a direct result of a lack of grieving. Mm. Thank you, Dr. Bernice King. Yeah, thank you. That's a beautiful thought. I think it is wonderfully stated. Would be impossible to state anything else at that point. Dr. Joe, thank you so much for doing this. Is there anything that you want to let people know about, any aspect of your work that you just want to put out there? Well, I think if you're if you're if you're grieving, um, you know, the book Bearing the Unbearable can be really useful. And Wisdom Publications, they published the book. They have an online course that's really affordable. So if you can't find a really good therapist in your area, the online course can be really useful. It's very affordable. There are 10 lessons that you can re- revisit over and over. And I'm getting so much feedback from people that it's been incredibly helpful for them. I think the whole course will cost you less than a therapy session. So, Well, that's great. It's a heck of a deal. And also just yeah. thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. This was It was really lovely to talk with you again. Oh, th- thank you for inviting me, Forrest. Thank you. Dasho. So for this session of the Life After COVID Summit, I had a wonderful time being with Dr. Joanne Cacciatore. We had a wide-ranging conversation related to grief, traumatic stress, and the ways that we can really show up for other people more effectively out in the world. The central question that we focused on was how can we be with all that we've lost over the past year? And that was really a theme of the conversation as a whole, being with. Something that Dr. Joe said at the end that really resonated with me was that she has a lot of tools for people. There are a lot of tools, a lot of tactics, a lot of practices, but she's not trying to take anyone's grief away from them. The goal of this work in many ways is to feel more fully, not to feel less, not to get over it, not to move on to something else. But to have a real respect and appreciation, as we said in the middle of the conversation, for the ways in which grief is an ongoing process. It is an active verb. It's an I-N-G, grieving, that is happening to us all the time, all the time, in every moment from the point that we lose the person or lose the thing that we really care about. Now, of course, although grief is an ongoing process, it is that I-N-G verb, That doesn't mean that we want to be in traumatic activation all the time, forever. And Dr. Joe really shared a lot of practices that people can do in order to limit the more traumatic aspect of grief and loss in one's life. The core recommendation she made is to find a practice, a consistent daily practice that you can really commit to. She mentioned her Zazen practice, her sitting meditation practice. She also talked about connecting with nature in different kinds of ways, going for barefoot walks. That would probably be a lot for me. My feet would probably tap out pretty quickly. But the broader idea of getting out there, sweating, working your body, because another component of the trauma is the somatic aspect of it. Trauma often shows up as an estrangement of a person from their body because trauma is such a bodily experience. One of the things that came up over and over again throughout the conversation was the wonderful role that animals can play in supporting us through our grief process. And our connection with an individual animal can really help us move into a sense of connection with the wider world as well. Connection with all beings, connection with all people, connection with everyone who has suffered over this last year, as so many people have. And that feeling of connection can be a real antidote to the feelings of loneliness that are often experienced by people who are grieving. One of the points that Dr. Cacciatore really emphasized was the importance of social support, showing up for other people throughout their grieving process. People commonly shy away from the intense emotions that are felt and experienced by others we tiptoe around loss and grief. And that tiptoeing only exacerbates the feelings of isolation that are experienced by the person who is going through that process. They feel like their painful emotions are too much to be around. So they isolate themselves. They either shut off that part of their being 
where they just remove themselves from social relationships altogether. But one of the most powerful parts of Dr. Cacciatore's work is how she's able to fully show up emotionally for other people, how they can get an experience sitting with her of true empathy and attunement, how, they, how she can move toward their painful emotions without moving all the way into them. And one of the most powerful parts of Dr. Joe's work is her ability to show up fully for people who are going through the grieving process. Alongside the social aspects, really showing up for other people, another thing that we can do to be supportive of others and really supportive of ourselves as well is slow down. Understand that this isn't something that exists for just a finite period. Understanding that there isn't an expiration date on somebody's experience of grief. Realizing that the body often takes longer to process something than our brain does. And we have to slow that pace down to a point where our fleshy container over here can experience and process emotions in the same way that we can cognitively. So go out on a walk with a friend, write somebody a letter, take a picture that reminds you of somebody who is no longer here. Really claim that process. Be okay with inhabiting it and move toward somebody when they are going through this experience rather than moving away from them. And that's one of the ways that you can really be most supportive. So that's it for today's episode. Again, this conversation was taken from last weekend's Life After COVID Summit. If you'd like to listen to the other conversations and watch the videos associated with them, you can go to covidsummit.net. Again, that's all freely available until May 26th. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd also appreciate it if you would take the time to subscribe through the platform of your choice, maybe leave a rating and a positive review, and hey, if you want to, even tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways that we have to reach more people. You can also find us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash beingwell. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and receive a variety of bonuses that I actually spend a lot of time working on in return. Finally, again, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for your support of the podcast. It means just so much to me, and it's what allows me to keep on doing this work. Until next time, hope you have a great week.